welcome everybody. Thank you for joining our talk on dating and data science. Uh, I'm David. Uh, I'm the lead on the data team at Coffee Meets Bagel, a dating app. Um, Daniel is our machine learning engineer. Uh, we're going to be talking today a little bit about how we use ElastiCache as part of our uh, recommendation pipeline to deliver high-quality match recommendations to our users. I'm going to be giving you guys a brief intro on Coffee Meets Bagel um, and on Redis and ElastiCache, and then I'll be handing it off to Daniel for some of the more uh, technical details. Uh, bear with us with, for the early parts. I think the meat of the presentation is in the latter half, and for parts you're probably most interested in, um, that's really where the, the good stuff is. So, yeah, just as the intro, I'm going to give you the introduction of what Coffee Meets Bagel's uh, mission is all about, um, how we are using data science at Coffee Meets Bagel, and then finally some of the considerations for um, implementing these systems at scale. So, Coffee Meets Bagel. We are a dating app, if you aren't familiar with us, and um, our whole thing is we value quality over quantity. So we don't have an infinite feed of users that you can scroll through. We only provide a fixed number of matches per day. Uh, for male users, that's up to 21 per day. For female users, it's up to six. And uh, as part of this constraint of only showing a limited number of matches per day, we are, uh, it's important for us to uh, have a very high level of quality with the matches that we provide for our users. So our mission is really to create meaningful connections between people. We're not just trying to optimize for likes uh, for users. We really want people to meet, chat, and actually go out on dates and get in relationships. Um, to date, we have signed up millions of users, and we've made tens of millions of connections. So data science at Coffee Meets Bagel. Um, as you might imagine, the main problem we're trying to solve on the data team is the matching algorithm. So um, there's a couple different ways that we, we talk about this. Um, so we describe the system as both a two-way matching algorithm, there's one pipeline that we work on, and then also a one-way recommendation system. Um, the way to think about this is, uh, as you can imagine, for a company like Amazon or potentially Netflix, uh, for a recommendation system, you have a set of users and you have an inventory of products, and you're trying to recommend relevant products to those users. Uh, that's what we call a one-way recommendation system. For a two-way system, we actually are trying to connect two people. So we actually have to take into account the preferences of two individual people. And this adds an additional level of complexity for um, solving this problem. So that's really been the brunt of what the team has been focused on. But that said, the team works on other problems like pretend, uh, predicting user retention or churn, uh, measuring attractiveness of users via facial features. Uh, we've done some experiments using collaborative filtering on uh, similar faces, looking at the history of users that you'd like to try and recommend people who look similar to those uh, that you would like. And yeah, in the future, we are still looking to solve some other problems. Uh, right now, we use some simple heuristics to try and identify scammers using our app, uh, but we'd like to have some more sophisticated uh, models to try and uh, more uh, er identify abusive users earlier on. Uh, along those lines, um, finding inappropriate content in our app, now that we have both video and photo, um, it's really critical for us to be able to remove this content ASAP. And so we'd like to help the cumin raters that we already use to uh, do this moderation to try and bring attention to uh, particularly uh, uh, content that's particularly likely to be uh, abusive or inappropriate. And then finally, we just want to do more with our media in the future. You know, we aren't doing as much as we could be with, um, with both uh, photo content, and now that we have video content, we'd really like to extract some more information uh, from that media as input into our various models. So in terms of technical uh, challenges for us, as you might imagine, and for a lot of businesses, this really just comes down to scale. So you know, we have millions of users, um, but in our context, since our users are effectively our products, you can imagine that we now have potentially um, billions of uh, potential matches for our, our matches that we would have to calculate without any logic uh, backing uh, about how we go about providing recommendations for our users. And so really what we'd like to be able to do is to be able to refresh all of our recommendations on a daily basis to take into account all the most recent information that we have. And um, that's high throughput is really the, the goal of what we're trying to achieve with this. And obviously, reliability and um, low maintenance. 
Um, so just walking sort of backwards through our funnel here, um, you know, today we've created roughly 100,000 um, people reporting that they're in happy relationships and couples um, with 300 million messages exchanged and more than a billion uh, introductions that have been made through our app. So I know a lot of you are probably already familiar with Redis or Elasticache. I'm just going to do a sort of quick primer for those who aren't as familiar with it. Uh, so yeah, uh, Redis, as you may know, is open source. It's an in-memory um, key value store. Uh, by being in memory, the advantage is that it's very, very fast, um, low latency, um, but potentially a little bit expensive. Uh, we can achieve high availability with it, and um, now that Redis has cluster uh, capability, uh, we can do horizontal scaling. Uh, there's also a number of primitive data types in Redis uh, that we are leveraging uh, beyond just the key, basic key value functionality. Getting into some of those um, that you may not have used. Uh, sorted sets are something that Daniel will get into a little bit later in terms of um, how we're using them in a couple different capacities. But um, sorted sets are effectively, you can think of as a priority queue. So we can add items to a set, but we can also assign a priority to it. And then uh, we can do queries in constant time to do, for instance, range queries, or we can pull items from the uh, front of the queue all in constant time. So in the basic example here, we're adding four items to a sorted set, each with a different priority between zero and two and then we do a range query on the set to uh, figure out which items are actually in the queue. Uh, in addition, uh, Redis has just basic sets. Um, with uh, basic sets, you can add any items, and then you can do uh, set general set queries that you might like to do. So in our context, uh, center query, which is a set intersection uh, between two uh, set keys, uh, will return any uh, overlapping items between the two sets. Finally, in terms of uh, geospatial querying, uh, we're using uh, Redis's geo sorted sets. And this allows us to add um, items to these sets at a given latitude and longitude. Um, once those items have been added to a, a geo-sorted set, we can do radius queries on those sets in order to find all of the items in that set that are within a given radius of uh, the location input in. As for Elasticache, Elasticache is Amazon's uh, hosted version of uh, either Redis or Memcache. And the uh, great thing about Elasticache is it can hold a lot of information in memory. Uh, it's really, really easy to set up. And um, in terms of operational considerations, uh, automatically detecting and replacing failed nodes is really convenient, means not as much uh, hands-on work for our DevOps team. And then finally, um, scaling it with no downtime is a great asset for us. So at this point, I'm going to hand it off to Daniel. He's going to get into some of the, the real good meat of the presentation about how we're currently leveraging Elasticache. So Daniel, thanks. All right, thank you very much, David. All right, thank you all for being here. So now we're gonna get into the nitty gritty of, of our challenges. We're gonna look at how Redis and Elasticache uh, helped us solve some of the really uh, challenging problems that we have here, which is, which is you know, giving high quality matches at scale. But before we do that, let's, let's start with the, with the basics, okay? So what is the CMB data team trying to achieve at a higher level? At a high level, we're trying to give you the highest quality matches, serve to our mobile clients as fast as possible. Why is this? Well, because it's, it's computationally infeasible for us to calculate the best match for you on demand. We have business logic. We have the score calculation components. It's basically very hard to do this immediately for the, for the mobile clients. So what do we have to do? We have to calculate these scores up front, right? From a technical standpoint, this looks like every user having one or more queues. Each queue has one or more recommendations, and these recommendations are sorted by score, where a higher score is a better match, right? And just to set, it, just to set the tone here in the audience, 
I want to tell you where does this score come from, right? So this score comes from two main components. We have the feature vectors, and we have the classifiers, or models. So the feature vectors, just think of them as uh, identi this, this, uh, this vector of, of numbers that identifies a user, right? And every user has one or more of these. Each of these feature is, is a specific characteristic of the user, right? Demographic features, like for example, the user being tall. But we also have behavioral features, like uh, the user being popular. That's based on, on historical analysis, right? Just think of a feature vector as being the DNA of a user. And then we have the classifiers, and these classifiers are, are trained using a lot of historical data. And they understand how much every feature weighs in the, in the, in the context of a match. The higher the, the higher the feature is in the classifier, the, the more important it is, right? So let's look, at, let's look at an example here. So here we have three features here. Is popular, is tall, and is engineer. As you can see here, is popular is the most, is the most important feature. It's the most indicative feature in, in the scope of a match, right? And I'm sorry for all the engineers out here, but uh, is engineer doesn't really help. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, how do we perform a score? Well, what we do is to calculate a score between, between the users, we have to multiply each feature by its coefficient in the classifier. And then we sum everything up all together, and that gives us one score here. So in this case, it's 0.5. All right, so now let's look at Coffee Meets Bagel from a, a, a bird's eye view. What does our data pipeline look like? As you can see, there are two main components here. We have the batch component, and we have the real-time component. The batch component is a set of cron jobs that kicks off at 7.30 a.m. in the morning, and it takes around 15 to 20 hours to run. Our, our feature extractor processes extract data from our data warehouse, which in this case is Redshift. We take that data, we transform it, and we build features for our users. This happens every day. Once we build those features, we store them into an offline storage for later use. And then we have the real-time component. At the real-time component, there is, uh, there is one part which is really important, crucial to all this. The heart is the recommender workers. And these workers, they take profile IDs of, the, of our priority queue, and for every profile ID, they have one responsibility. Find and generate recommendations for that profile ID and store them for later use. All right, so... Let's, from now on, what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the challenges here. As you can see, there are a lot of R's in, um, in, this, uh, in this presentation. And each of these has something to do with Redis and Elastic Cache. We're going to go through them one by one, and we're going we're gonna to outline the problem and the associated solution that we found. Let's start with the first one, all right? Invalid matches. So our users are very, very picky in the matches they want, right? They tell us their criteria. They tell us their location. And most importantly, they don't want to see users that they've already seen before. If I'm in San Francisco, I most probably want to date someone which is in San Francisco. I don't want to date someone from New York. And if I've already seen a user and passed, passed on that user in the past, I don't want to see that user again, right? And most importantly, we, we cannot afford to score matches that, that, we, that are invalid because we end up with a, with a quadratic problem here. So we definitely need to filter down and narrow down the matches that we want to score as much as possible. 
Let's start with the first component here. How do we, how do we fetch the users? How do we fetch the potential recommendations? Well, the first step here is finding users that are eligible for our location, right? How do we do this? Well, in Redis, we have four geo-sorted sets of active users, one per each gender and gender preference, right? So male looking for female, female looking for male, male looking for male, and female looking for female, right? Each of these sets contains the active users. When I need to search for, for the, my potential matches, all I do is I perform a geo-radius query, which allows us to efficiently fetch candidates that meet that, meet that criteria. Let me give you an example. So I'm a straight male in San Francisco. And my, my max criteria, I want to date someone which is within 50 miles of my location. So then I perform a geo-radius query with the bucket female towards male with a longitudinal latitude of San Francisco and a distance of 50 miles. Bear in mind, just to recap, I'm, I'm a straight male, so I'm looking for a female towards male, female looking for male. And so I will pick in the bucket, which is female towards male. Just this step allows us to reduce the number of candidates from 1 million to 10,000. This is pretty huge. All right, so then we get this list of candidates, but we still have another, another challenge here. We want to make sure that, that, that the recommendations that we serve to a user are not recommendations that we've already served to our user in the past. And so we need to find a space-efficient way to filter out those recommendations. Bloom filters are these probabilistic data structures that effectively check set membership really, really fast and very efficiently, right? At the cost of false positives, though. We don't get anything for free here. What do these look like under the hood? Under the hood, they're a bit vector. And each Bloom filter has one or more hash functions. And these hash functions accept a, a hashable item and return a specific index of the bit vector. Let me give you an example of of two common operations that we want to do with our bit vectors. Add an item to the bit vector and check the membership. Check if an item is already present in that Bloom filter. So to add an item, let's say here we want to add ID 25. And we, this Bloom filter has two hashing functions, all right? The first hashing function tells us to set the bit at index one. The second hash function tells us to set the bit at index four. We calculate these up front, and then we know exactly what bits to set, and we set those bits to one. Remember, a Bloom filter starts with all bits set to zero. Then we have our second ID here, ID 57. We do the same operation. We calculate that the, the outputs of the hashes, which is index four and index seven, and we set those bits. Now, when we want to actually check membership, when we want to actually check if a specific bit uh, if a specific user is inside the bit vector, then what we do is the same operation. We calculate the hash functions, and we calculate the bits that we, need to, that we need to check, and we just check that all those bits are set to one. If any of those bits are, is not set to one, then we know for sure that that item is not present in the bit vector. If all those bits are set to one, then we know with a certain probability that that item is present inside the bit vector. And as I said, here we have a risk of false positives here. As you can see, both ID25 and ID57 have one hash function which sets the specific bit. 
So there, there is a risk of false positives here when we, when we check. What are the pros and cons of this? The pros is obviously space efficiency, right? We know we allocate these bit vectors up front, so we know exactly how much we can account for uh, for, for future scalability, for future organic growth. The cons is obviously uh, the probability of, of false positives. Uh, but these are tunable through uh, some parameters of the Bloom filters when we create them. So how do these Bloom filters, how are they used in Coffee Meets Bagel? Well, every user in Coffee Meets Bagel has a Bloom filter. Let's call this the exclusion Bloom filter. Every time a user sees a recommendation in our app, that recommendation ID is added to the Bloom filter. And these Bloom filters live entirely inside of Redis. Luckily, we have some Python code around it. Python is the programming language of our infrastructure. And we have some Python code, a wrapper around these Bloom filters, that is able to compute all the hash functions up front and then just uh, perform set bit operations on the, on the Redis key that we want to address, right? And just to put into context, set bit is a specific, is, is, a, is, a, is a function inside of Redis, it's an operation inside of Redis that allows us to set a specific bit of a Redis key. So every time we have to add a user, we calculate all the, all the bits that we have to set in our hash function, and then all we do is we just issue set bit operations. And we can do that also in a pipeline to make it more efficient. Then, when we need to check membership, well, luckily, we always do this in batch, right? Every time we have to check membership, we always have a lot of candidates that we need to, that we need to uh, check for. So then, what we do is we just read the entire Bloom filter in memory once, and we perform all the checks in, in our Python code. So it's very, very efficient from an I.O. perspective. Just to show you, this is what our code looks like, right? So this is a, a Python function that accepts one argument, which is the candidate IDs. Just think of it as a collection of profile IDs that we want to check for membership inside the Bloom filter. The output of this function returns a subset of those IDs that for sure are not inside the Bloom filter. What I'd love to, what I'd love to, uh, to show you here is how simple this, this Python code is. As you can see, we iterate over the candidate IDs. For every candidate ID, we just calculate the hash positions, and we just check if that, if that bit at a specific hash position is set. If any of those bits is not set, we know for sure that we need to include that item inside the Bloom filter. And as I said, we're OK with false positives here. Now. Uh, the great thing about this code is that we only do one read from Redis. That's huge, because we don't have to perform like complex like set intersections and stuff like that. We read the entire Bloom filter in memory, and we know exactly how much the space is up front. All right, so let's get to another challenge here. So before I was showing you our classifiers, I was showing you a linear classifier, right? And these models are very, very compact. They're very compact to store. At Coffee Meets Bagel, though, we also use very non-compact classifiers. Uh, like in this case, we use our ALS classifier, which is, which is used to perform collaborative filtering. These classifiers not only are very, very huge to store in memory, but also grow linearly, based, quadratically based on our user base. Right? They're pretty big. And most importantly, by serializing this to, to, to disk or to memory or whatever we want, and reloading it inside our workers is very, very expensive operation, right? And we'd also have to bring a lot of dependencies with us. So is there any way we can train these classifiers and then 
use a, instead of having to like reload them in memory just to use a predict function, is there any way we can do this more efficiently? Well, it turns out that the ALS classifier is mainly composed, once trained, of two matrices, the U and the V matrix. And it turns out that to compute one score between a user and the recommendation, all we need is two vectors, one from one matrix and one from the other. We take those two matrices and we can perform a dot product, and we get the score between those two users. So what we do is this. We train, we train the classifier in the traditional way, but then what we do is we decompose the classifier. And we get both matrices, the U and the V, and we save every row. We serialize every row and we save it in Redis at a different key, right? So every row has a specific key. Then, in our recommender workers, when we have to compute the scores between two users, all we do is fetch those two vectors that we care about and perform the dot product. It's very, very efficient. And, and, and you know, if you think about it, also from a memory perspective, we don't have to load an entire classifier, a lot of rows that we'd never use. We only use a subset of those rows. And this was really great. And also, if one day we don't want to use Spark anymore, we, as, long as, this, as long as the new classifier supports this concept of matrix factorization is made out of these matrices that can be decomposed, we can perform the same operation. All right. So now we know how to fetch these recommendations. We know how to filter them down to remove ones that we've already seen. And we know how to calculate the scores, but we still got to persist them. And if you think about it, if you consider our user base as being around, let's say, uh, one million active users, and for every active user we want to have a backlog of at least a thousand recommendations to be served, well then we have one billion matches that we, need to, that we need to persist. That's a huge number. And most importantly, we said we want to re refresh these recommendations organically in a, in a regular fashion, right? And so the, the data store that we use to, to persist these recommendations need to, need to address our, our high update frequency and moderate deletion. But most importantly, it's going to be update and creation, right? And then, obviously, when the clients ask for this information, we want to serve it as fast as possible. So we want to make sure that there's low latency when the webs read this, read this information. So what did we start with? We started with Cassandra. And the reason we started with Cassandra is because we have a, a good in-house knowledge of how Cassandra works. We've already using it. And also, there were two main things, which is you know, it, it's made for, for high write volume and low latency on reads, right? So that was really huge for us. But we had, we had two main issues with Cassandra. The first issue was the garbage collector. Our DevOps team was spending a lot of time tuning the garbage collector. Uh, we tried different garbage collectors on top of the JVM. Unfortunately, we couldn't find anything that wasn't giving us partial outages at times. And then the second, the second issue is, as a consequence of that, uh, as a, Cassandra, Cassandra gives us this, uh, this, uh, uh, this consistency. This is like uh, eventual consistency, right? And we thought we could deal with that. But unfortunately, we found out that we can't, especially when you just delete their profiles. We want to make sure that those, those changes are addressed immediately. So then we already had expertise with Redis in the house. We turned to Redis. And um, what we ended up having is using sorted sets to store our queues of recommendation. What does this look like? Well, we have one sorted set per model per user, right? And each of these sorted sets stores the recommendation IDs sorted by score, right? And this is 
here is an example of the, the syntax here to add a recommendation. As you can see, also the, the curly bra braces here are used as a cluster syntax. So this will also shard horizontally. This was really great for us because it allowed us to use the technology that we were already familiar with and, uh, and persist these recommendations in a, in, a, in a fairly simple way, right? And uh, another thing I wanted to say about this is that uh, the cost of, of actually holding this data in memory uh, wasn't substantially more than our Cassandra cluster with the added value that obviously this is all in memory. So it does support our, our usage patterns, right? Low latency read and high throughput writes. It does support that. All right. So let's go on to another challenges, which is set intersections uh, between mutual friends. So based on our data, we find out that mutual friends is a really important aspect to consider when serving a match, right? Users love to find recommendations that they have something in common, some, some level of proximity, right? And that's where mutual friends comes into play. We want to make sure that when we serve matches, we consider the factor that users may have mutual friends between them, and we want to prioritize those matches, right? So what, what happens here? When you, when you sign up to Coffee Meets Bagel, we ask permission to download your Facebook friends list. If you give us that permission, then we're going to download that Facebook friend, we're going to add it to a set inside of Redis, right? Now, there's a sad truth about mutual friends, which is, unfortunately, only like 3% of the possible matches between two users have mutual friends, right? It's very, very low. But, you know, everyone knows here on Facebook, you have like 3,000 friends, right? Every user has like 3,000 friends. So it's, it's very, very inefficient to have to download on, on, our, on, our, uh, on our processes, on our worker processes, to download the entire sets of two users to then perform an intersection, right? Just think of the amount of I.O. operations that you're doing, the, the amount of I.O. to download these sets of like 3,000 people each to then perform an intersection in, in your code, right? So it turns out that Redis has a center operation. And what's good about the center operation is that it accepts uh, two sets, and it just returns the intersection between those two sets, right? So in this case, we're intersecting the set of user A and user B, and we just get the output of the intersection. There are two great things about this approach. The first great thing is that obviously the amount of I.O. that comes back to us is minimal, right? As I said, only 3% of matches have some kind of mutual friend. So we're, we're, we're reducing the amount of I.O. to very minimal. On the other side, though, a great thing is that it also simplifies our application code a lot because we're just issuing an operation and delegating to Redis to perform that operation as efficient as possible. So this was really efficient for us. All right, and now let me get to the, 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 the last uh, use case here of, of our presentation, which is our fault-tolerant priority queues using Redis. So we ended up building our own in-house queue using sorted sets and hashes. And we built it with specific goals in mind. What are these goals? Granular prioritization, scheduling tasks in advance, fault tolerance, and locking. And I'm going to go through all of these, and I'm going to give you an example of when you may need them, for example. So granular prioritization. So we were speaking before about uh, our recommender queues, right? And that our recommender workers will take IDs off the recommender queue to generate recommendations. Well. That queue always has a backlog intentionally because 
we always want to make sure that we refresh everyone's recommendation on a regular basis. But at the same time, if a user changes their location or changes their criteria, we want to prioritize that user through the queue. So we want an enqueuing API that supports an additional priority and that allows us to process one item before another regardless of when it was inserted. Scheduled tasks. Well, many times our, our team wants to send some push notifications out, but these push notifications, maybe we want to schedule them in advance, right? And this, our enqueuing API supports an additional timestamp parameter. This timestamp parameter allows us to enqueue tasks in the future regardless of when they were inserted. So an example is if I enqueue push notifications with a timestamp, it's 9 a.m., I enqueue pushes with a timestamp of noon, well, those pushes will never be processed until noon comes. Our workers know that they don't need to process any item, any task with an associated timestamp in the future. And that will happen organically with all the retrying mechanisms, and it's really great for us. And finally, fault tolerance. Obviously, everyone wants fault tolerance, right? Uh, we want to make sure that regardless of when, you, uh, of, of when you insert the item and when the worker processes it, you know, things will fail eventually. But we want to make sure that if things fail, there always will be another worker that in the future is able to process that, that, that task at a later stage. And then finally, we want to make sure that there never is a, a, a scenario in which two workers are working on the same item at the same time. For example, uh, for uh, consistency mechanisms, for uh, race conditions, potential race conditions that, that may, may happen. So many people ask us, why not use Celery? And we did start with Celery, obviously, right? We're a small company. Remember, we're 30, we're 30 people, 30 people, and not all of us are engineers. We started with Celery, but we had two main issues with Celery. The first issue was if you use Celery with a Redis backend, there's a huge amount of I.O. going on between your workers and between the Redis box. I'm speaking about pub-sub operations and other kind of operations. It's pretty huge. And a year ago, we had a small outage because of it. So that wasn't really that good. Another reason is because Celery is a, is a really big project, and it's got all these bells and whistles. But most of the time, we just want to keep things really simple, and we just have these specific use cases that we want to we wanna, we want to adhere to. So um, for the sake of simplicity, we also decided to use these priority queues uh, just to keep it simple. And by the way, for tasks that need to go in first in, first out, or need to be processed as fast as possible, we also use SQS, which has been really grateful for us. Uh, we're, able to, we're able to scale really well with that, and our application code is very simple. So yeah, our, our asynchronous processes are all or our full-tolerant priority queues, or Celery, or, uh, sorry, or SQS. Now, what do these priority queues look like under the hood? Well, they're backed by three main data structures here. The main queue, the retry queue, and the backlog. The main queue contains all the items that are waiting to be processed. This is a sorted set of an item sorted by priority, where priority, just think of it as an integer. Then we have the retry queue, and this retry queue contains all the items that are being processed now. This is a sorted set of an item with an associated timestamp. And bear in mind, the retry queue is going to be also very crucial for our fault tolerance. 
if, if any process that checks out an item then fails, that item will still be present in the retry queue for later use. And then we also have a backlog, right? And this backlog is used uh, if we try to enqueue an item which is already present in the main or retry queue. This item gets added in the backlog. And this is just a, a hash uh, keyed by item ID and whose value is, is a timestamp. And these priority queues are then backed by three main operations, right? And these operations run in Lua, right? So uh, Lua is the scripting language uh, that Redis supports. What's great about it is that it's a very, very simple language to understand. And it also gives us, within the lifetime of a Lua script, it gives us atomicity. So that's something we really love. We have three operations here, enqueue, checkout, and remove. Let's start with the first one. So when you enqueue an item, you, the API accepts an item with a specific priority. The enqueue operation first looks at the main queue. And if there is a, already is an item in the main queue or the retry queue, then it's added to the backlog because it means that it's already been scheduled to process. We don't want to process things at the same time. Then we have the checkout operation. The checkout operation is called by our workers when they want to, when they want to take an item to be processed. Right? The checkout operation does two main things. The first thing is it, it tries to find where to fetch the item to check out. And the second thing is it adds it for later scheduling in the retry queue. Let's go into a little bit more details. So when I check out an item, the first thing I look is in the retry queue. Remember, the retry queue is a sorted set of items sorted by timestamp. I check the first item at the top of the retry queue. And I, and I look at its associated timestamp. If that timestamp is in the past or in the present, it's not in the future, then I check out that item. If every timestamp in the retry queue is in the future or the retry queue is empty, I'll pick from the top of the main queue. Regardless of where I pick up my item, I always add a reference of that item at the back of the retry queue. And this is because of the fault tolerance. And then finally, when a worker has finished this processing an item, we want to call remove. And what remove does is it removes the item from the main and the retry queue, and then it checks the backlog. If it finds an item in the backlog with the same key, it'll take that item from the backlog with its associated priority and move it back to the main queue. Right? So this is, I can understand it being like a bit complicated. And so what I want to do is I want to go through an example with you. Specifically, I want to go through the example of checking out. And I apologize for the people on, the, on, on my right, because uh, I'll, I just have to choose one screen. So I'll just choose this one. Sorry. <laughs> I don't hate you. Um, I hope everyone is able to see, but I'll try to be as verbose as possible. Okay. So here we have this, this dotted line that separates the, the current state of our priority queue and the state after the, the checkout operation has, has completed, right? We're removing the backlog here just for simplicity, right? So remember, we're checking out an item. The first thing we do is we check at, on the first item of the retry queue. As you can see, this item is F, right? And we check its priority, which is now plus five. Just think of five as like five minutes in the future, five hours, some point in the future we see that the priority is in the future. So we, we take the item from the main queue here, which in this case is B. And before returning B, we add B at the back of the retry queue. 
and we return B. This is all happens inside our Lua code. Let's look at another example here. Same thing here. We're checking out an item. We look at the retry queue, and as you can see, there's an item here, which is F. And that item has a priority, which is in the past here. It's, it's current timestamp minus one minute, one hour, whatever. So we return F. But before returning F, we bump F in the retry queue to the back of the queue. And we return it. So that if our worker fails, at some point, F is going to be retried. And this is the checkout script, right? It's, what I like about it is that it's very, very simple. Uh, this is Lua script. It's a language native to Redis, and it's executed atomically, uh, which is really great, because we make sure that between one operation and another, there is no race condition. There is no other item trying to take, uh, take items off of that queue. Right? This is atomic. And now, you know, hopefully, hopefully you've understood uh, some of our challenges, but it can be a bit confusing to see everything all together. So hopefully now I'll be able to tell you a little bit of a story around it. Right? Everything starts with a feature extractor. Right? This kicks off at 7.30 a.m. in the morning. And the responsibility of the feature extractor is to take our data from our data warehouse, Redshift, transform that data, and write those features out to Redis. Right? So extraction from Redshift, transformation within the process, and writing out those feature vectors to our store. And then we have, then we have our workers. Right? As we said, the workers basically consume the items from the queue, those profile IDs from that queue, in a, in a priority basis. So they're obviously going to process items with a higher priority first. Right? For every item, they have to generate recommendations for that user. How does that happen? Well, the first thing we do is, for one item, we perform a georadius query. We get the potential candidates of the user within a geographical proximity. right? And this reduces the number of candidates from 1 million to 10,000. That's huge. right? Then, for those remaining candidates, we pass them through the Bloom filter. We remove candidates that the user has already seen. 10,000 goes down to 8,000. And then for only those 8,000 users, we, we, we fetch the vectors of those users from our Redis data store. Right? And we know exactly which vectors to fetch. Compute the scores and save those scores inside the sorted set for later use. In summary, we use Redis at every level. And this is not only on the data team, but pretty much everywhere. Uh, we love Redis a lot. And uh, one thing we love about it is the low operational cost. It's really great for us to, um, to be able to handle all this operation, hold all this information, delegating uh, our you know, processing constraints, memory constraints to uh, Elastic Cache. And, uh, and it's obviously performant at scale. right? It's, re it's been really great for us. You know, we also use Redis in the traditional way of like caching key value store. But it also works with, you know, with these kind of like, uh, more advanced operations. Right? And most importantly, right, I love the fact that these primitive data structures can be used in a data store, because it really reduces the complexity of our tech stack. And um, it makes our code very simple, because we rely on, on, the, on the, the Redis's guarantee of atomicity. And on the other side, you know, it, it always ends up being the, the simplest solution in our case. If this is something that is interesting to you, well, we are hiring. So you know, 
uh, feel free to uh, come speak to me or David. And uh, we also hire remotely. So if you're not in San Francisco, uh, you know, we'd love to have a chat with you regardless, because, uh, yeah, we have a lot of exciting things going on. This is just a subset of them. Um, and yes, yeah, so this is the website, but you, know, you can speak to me or David. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. I hope uh, now we can open for Q&A. And uh, if anyone has to ask any questions, there are two microphones here at the end that you can come up and ask questions. If not, we'll just have beer all together. All right, thank you very much. And I apologize if you already addressed it, I missed it, but um, with the Facebook thing, I thought that was really interesting. Did you, do you, did you say that you update that Facebook list regularly? Because people are always adding and removing friends, and is that something you update? Yeah, we, we cached the friends, we do an initial download of the friends list, so we get anonymized IDs for our users. Uh, friends, and then um, after I think it's a month, we um, we just check again once it expires. Yeah, we have some cron jobs that run and do that for us. Yeah. All right. Is there anything uh, anything else that anyone is interested about Elastic Cash or has any generic questions? Hopefully, we'll be able to answer those. Uh, I had a quick question. How are you persisting the Redis data? Is that append only log, or like if, Sorry, if the node me? goes down, the Redis nodes go down, how do you persist that right, data? So how, how do you get it back? I mean, we're backing up with BG save, I think, and then um, when nodes fail over, so we have masters and slaves, right? So if a node fails, it's going to fail over to the slave and then get promoted. Um, and that's really easy with Elastic Cache. Uh, it sort of and, happens automatically. And is that auto done automatically by AWS, or did you have to? Yeah, with Elastic Cache, we don't even have to worry about it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, we had to turn off like automatic saves because it was pretty much pausing our operations. But by having a replica there, we're able to guarantee that if anything happens to the master, it'll fail over automatically. Yeah, and also cluster obviously has, for every node in the cluster, for every partition in our cluster, we also have associated slaves. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if you already addressed this, but how do you filter out someone um, from the recommendation that the person has already seen? Is that like a bit in the bloom filter or? Yeah, so I mean, that is, we actually maintain the recommendations in, in more or less like near real time. So um, anytime uh, a user sees you or you see a user, uh, we add the profile to uh, asynchronous, uh, one of our queue, actually our priority queues, and an asynchronous worker picks it up. And then we'll um, both add it to the bloom filter and actually uh, remove that recommendation uh, from our system. So it'll. Um, yeah, basically by maintaining all the recommendations in near real time, we can always sort of do a, a query on demand and have some uh, assurance that it meets all the criteria that we want it to meet via criteria location and all the other stuff that we discussed. Okay. Yeah. I wanted to know if you guys uh, use uh, Redis like modules and if, if you've, cons like, how do you balance moving functionality into Redis and then having do everything yeah, like why that could be good or bad. Yeah, that, that's a really good question. I think Redis free introduced modules. And um, we, there is actually a Bloom filter module that we could use. Um, I, I, so there, I think there, there are two reasons. So the first reason is obviously like if something is working for us, there's no real reason to actually port that over to another solution. 
because, you know, as I said, we're a very small team, so time is very important for us. And the current Bloom filter implementation we have is, is working relatively well, so we want to keep that. But there's also a second reason, which is the Bloom filter inside the Redis modules, from my understanding, obviously, there's all the hashing calculations in the Redis code, in the Lua code, right, or C code or whatever. We want to, what we love about our current approach is that we calculate the bits that we have to set up front, and then we batch the set bit operations. And that's very efficient because we, don't, we wouldn't want any additional computation happening on our data store, right? We want to keep our data store just simply for writing. And so by moving that, that logic over to our application code, we literally minimize the amount of operations happening on Redis, right? Remember, Redis is atomic, so it'll block until that operation finishes. Yeah. Anyone use Elastic Cache here? Sorry. I, Yay. I had a question. Yes. So uh, your first part in the architecture overview diagram is yeah. basically batch, whereas the second part is streaming, sorts of. This part here? Yeah. Then okay. you said the feature extractor runs about 17 hours? That's correct. Do you have, like, any future improvements to make data streaming? And, like, because you can only run, run it once a day, right? That's what correct. happens when you want to run it multiple times a day or if it fails and you don't get to finish in that day? Yeah, yeah. So um, what I mean by 17 hours is every actual process itself takes around... So when we generate recommendations, right, we, we use, uh, when we use our uh, Spark implementation, right, Spark has this concept of user and product, right? So it's always directional, right? So it's like generating rec when we generate recommendations, we do that like males towards females or females towards males, right? And we also do it partitioned by location. So we have literally the number of genders, right? So male and female times the number of match regions that we have. Every match region is just like a geographical area, like Las Vegas, San Francisco. The entire process takes 20 plus hours. But if we want to rerun a subset, of those, we don't have to rerun the 20 Oh, hours. so it delivers in partition subsets, yeah. which you can rerun. Oh. That's correct. So I just, for simplicity, I just said this process takes 20 hours. But this process is a series of Jenkins jobs that runs with a matrix configuration. So it'll just run uh, small, small partitions at a time. And the great thing about this is that if one of these partitions fails, it'll just retry that partition. So uh, yeah, this, this, this allows for our full tolerant. Full tolerant behavior. Second question I had, you mentioned that the data is originally in Redshift, right? Yes. Do you have any plans on using AWS Glue to like crawl Oh, um, unfortunately like we have not considered it. that. Uh, I, to be honest, I have uh, never used that. Uh, the reason we, we, use, uh, we use Redshift is simply because it's working for us now. And by the way, I actually uh, admitted for simplicity here uh, one step that happens, which is between the user data and the feature extractor. We do have a Spark job that actually takes the data from our Redshift cluster, so performs an unload operation from our Redshift cluster to S3, and then takes the data from S3 and partitions it in match regions and users and saves it in Parquet. So it, it's a, a lot more space efficient, right? Oh. Our, recommender, our feature extractors don't speak directly to Redshift, but they only speak to that partition. Oh, okay. cool. Thanks. Yeah, hope I answered your question. Yeah. Thank you. All right. I think we're good here. Thank you very much. Thank you.